Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon. As Jim Falk mentioned a few moments ago, my name is Bob Kantner, and I do have the honor and privilege of being the chairman of the Board of the Royal Affairs Council for a few more weeks. Uh, and it is a real pleasure for my law firm, Jones Day, to sponsor this event today for Ben Blink and Google, and it is my privilege to introduce him. Uh, there aren't many companies that achieve such publicity and public awareness that their name becomes synonymous with a process, procedure, or service that they provide. Some of us, not the students, can remember a company, Xerox. Okay? Today, we have Google, which has become synonymous essentially with Internet searching. Our guest today, Ben Blink, uh, graduated from Carleton College in, I think, Minnesota, as I understand it, with a Bachelor of Arts in the Cinema and Media Studies and Political Economy. He joined Google in 2010, dealing with advertising accounts and keeping businesses and their advertising on message in relation to their audiences. Parenthetically, he joined Google at about the same time, as I understand it, Ben, that Google made the decision to pull Google CN out of mainland China because of the Chinese insistence on the uh, checking and the disallowance uh, of certain search terms. Continuing his, his career, he passed through 2011 when Google went through another hacking, went through a hacking problem with the Chinese. He continued working at Google. In 2012, he began, he became public policy associate with the company and quickly climbed Google's public policy ladder from there until in 2014, he took up the reins as a senior policy analyst. His team specializes in internet governance, trade, and diplomatic relations and he was a founding member of the Free Expression and International Relations team at Google. Uh, he also finds time, by the way, to volunteer. I'm told he frequently gives back to the Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Washtenaw County. And anyone that can guess where that county is gets some kind of prize to be determined later. All right, we got some guesses. Ben is here today to discuss the new age of government intervention in the case for decreased censorship and filtering on the Internet and the steps that he and others at Google take to build coalitions to try and persuade governments not to engage in such censorship. And I learned from talking to Ben um, a few minutes before lunch that this is his first occasion to visit Dallas he has been to Houston, so we need to give him a real warm welcome to show the difference between Dallas and Houston. How about it? Thank you very much. Well, 
thank you very much, Bob, for that introduction. Thank you to Jim for your opening remarks. Um, and to the World Affairs Council of Dallas and Fort Worth. It's been a pleasure, my first visit to uh, the Dallas area so far. Um, and from the conversations I've had so far, it's, I'm really looking forward to the discussion that we have after my brief remarks here. So today we're going to talk about the Internet and what it means for freedom and power. But I want to first give you a quick story uh, that really illustrated what this means for me personally. Um, about a year ago, I was in New York City visiting a really good friend of mine from college. And like any thrifty 25-year-old, I was sleeping on his sofa. And when I woke up on Saturday morning on the couch, I noticed that my friend Colin was sitting at the kitchen table and he's pounding away at his laptop. Um, and it woke me up and he looked at it and said, no, sorry, sorry for the noise. I just have to do a little work this morning. I thought, okay, a little work on a Saturday, no problem. Then Colin puts on a headset and starts... Uh, talking to someone on the screen, and he mutes for a second and says, sorry, just have to do this quick video conference. I thought, wow, a video conference on a Saturday morning, that's pretty intense work. Um, then he said, no, I'm just tutoring this high school student in China. He uh, just wrote his first essay, and I'm giving him his remarks. So as, as Colin's going back and forth, he's talking about how to structure an opening paragraph, define the thesis. I'm sure our students know a lot about this right now. And I keep listening, Colin's explaining the fundamental principles of American democracy. The essay that this Chinese student is writing is on Locke and Rousseau. And at the end of the call, Colin wraps it up and says, hey, for your first essay, that was pretty great. So he hangs up, looks over at me, just completely nonchalantly says, okay, work's over. What do you want for breakfast? I was kind of taken aback. Here I am on a living room sofa, and Colin's teaching democracy to a student in China halfway around the world, face-to-face, -face, before he's even eaten breakfast. Now, what would have cost thousands of dollars in travel expenses 10 years ago costs absolutely nothing today. An interaction that would have required visas and support of a dozen officials 10 years ago required nothing but an Internet connection and two laptops today. And that video conference said more to me about the role of technology in global relations than any magazine article, keynote speech that I'd ever seen. For Colin and that student, and certainly for every student in the room today, the ability to connect with people around the world for free online is completely second nature. And as someone who works for Google, it's a little embarrassing to say how awestruck I was by that entire experience. Um, but for anyone just a few years younger, those interactions are just expected. They've been able to connect to people their, online their whole lives. For them, there isn't a pre- and a post-internet age. There's just internet and there's history. There isn't new media and old media. There's just what's online and what's not. And for them, borders and distance don't determine with whom you can connect. There's just those are connect who are connected and those who aren't. And every day there's a new app making finding a date easier, learning a language, making a business deal, or starting a conversation. And this technology is available to more people than it ever was before. Now, in 2000, there were about 300 million people connected to the Internet, most of them Americans. Today, there are more than 2.7 billion people connected online. And that's a 900% increase in just 14 years. And not only does it connect those 2.5 billion, pardon me, not only does it reach them, but it connects them together. They're able to have intimate conversations between um, each other. As a result, there are now hundreds of millions of media outlets if we're counting everyone's social media page, which I think we absolutely must. And 
But let's think about the scale of just information here. So Google, as you may know, owns YouTube, a uh, video sharing platform. And there are more than 100 hours of video shared each minute on YouTube. That's just every, every minute you hear me speaking, days and days of new video is available online on YouTube. And let's think about how we got to this point. Um, recently I was paging through a magazine that I'd collected when I was a little bit younger and out fell one of those AOL CD-ROMs. Anyone remember those? They came in magazines, they came in the mail. And if you signed up for AOL, you turned on your dial-up modem. I'm giving a little history lesson over here. Turned on your dial-up modem. You got a, that, that famous noise, that beepy clicking noise, and you heard that famous, you've got mail message. But AOL wasn't the same as the internet as we know it today. It was a closed network that controlled what information was shared and received. At its height in 2002, it had about 27 million users. And AOL had a business model with monthly fees, partnerships with content providers, advertising, chat rooms, games, and so on. And AOL wasn't alone. It had competitors you might remember, like CompuServe and Prodigy. But just as those services were reaching the peak of their popularity, the open internet started to take off. And it was very, very different. Unlike the paid services, the internet was free and open. No one controlled the content, and the internet's design let anyone build new services and join the network. And that's exactly what happened. The New York Times plugged in, the University of Texas plugged in, the Tokyo Museum, Amazon, Twitter, you name it. They all plugged in and they all connected to each other. The closed networks like AOL quickly started to falter. Simply put, the internet grew to become the most powerful communications tool in human history, and it did so because of its elegant structure. It's free and it's open. Let's think about what's changed. So amateur rockers post homemade video on YouTube and suddenly they're on world tours. Cat videos get more views than an episode of American Idol. <laughs> but this is certainly an entertainment revolution, but it's not just that. Bloggers are now holding politicians accountable when mainstream news couldn't get access to those same stories. Individuals spark fundraising drives and raise millions of dollars for causes that are important to them. Think about the ice bucket challenge. At the end of the day, no one is sitting in a corporate boardroom, at a movie studio, or in a government building deciding what's cool, what's hot, what's important, or who should become famous. Ideas and art rise to the top or crash to the bottom because people decide ultimately what's important. And that's a major shift in power. And that's what we're talking about today. So let me give you a few concrete examples and some of the more traditional forms of power that we think about at a forum like this. So a few years back, a nine-year-old Scottish girl named Martha Payne decided that she didn't like the quality of her school lunch. So it was very bland and beige colored, and it didn't look very appetizing. So Martha wanted to protest, so what did she do? She starts posting pictures on her blog. Smart kid. Each day she would come into the lunchroom, take photos of what was being served, and post it to the blog, and that could be shared with anyone. So parents and others started sharing her blog locally and complaining to the city council, which uh, in Scotland controls the schools. And the officials were overwhelmed by the attention, so what did they do? What any good uh, governing board does, they banned her from taking pictures of her lunch. <laughs> So that was, the, that was the turning point. So she mentioned the photo ban on her blog, and that's when her movement really caught fire. 
celebrity chef Jamie Oliver got involved. Her effort got global headlines and the city council eventually reversed its ban. Today, Martha is an advocate for youth nutrition, fighting poverty around the world, something that's almost impossible without the internet. But on the other side of the globe, we witnessed the all too common one step forward, two steps back phenomenon. You may have heard of the cardiac surgeon from Egypt named Bassem Youssef. 60 Minutes did a great piece on him uh, a few months ago. Uh, Bassem saw John Stewart on The Daily Show and decided that he wanted to make his own satirical news show of his own in Egypt. So just after Hosni Mubarak was deposed, he saw his opportunity. He grabbed a video camera, started producing a show in his living room, and posted videos to YouTube. He called it the B-plus show. And the show started with just a few viewers, but people in Egypt wanted comedy and satire. Soon he was seeing 10,000 views per episode, 100,000 views, 500,000 views. I remind you, this is a show that's shot, shot in his living room or his laundry room with a camera and just posted on the internet. Soon his show got so big that it got picked up by a major broadcaster with audiences in the millions. And he was named one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people last year. Now, Bassem's satire didn't discriminate. In 2012, he was detained by the Morsi government for insulting Islam, insulting the president, and reporting false news. He was released and fined. But then as Morsi was deposed, he made a few jokes about the new leader, General al-Sisi. And he had, had several of his episodes pulled off the air because he was attacking uh, government in power at that point. But this summer, after al-Sisi was officially elected president, Bassem ended his show. The government had had enough. Uh, when the show went off the air, Yusuf said something that I thought was especially poignant. He said, fear sells, fear works. And when people are afraid, referring to the government, they will not elect, accept logic, let alone satire. He makes a point that isn't lost on any world leaders. We know that throughout human history, methods of communication that were free and open weren't embraced by governments, monarchs, or the police. To the contrary, they were often shut down, monitored, and put back in their bottles. So what about those governments today? The ones accustomed to sending censors to stand over printing presses and newsroom teleprompters. Well, they also see how the internet is transferring power from giant institutions back to the people. So if you're, used to a if you're a dictator used to controlling traditional media, what do you think your worst nightmare looks like? It's a town square full of protesters with cell phones. People who can organize and share information instantly without any sort of oversight or regulation. So as a result, nations like Cuba and North Korea just blocked the internet wholesale. Many others turn to filtering and censorship. The most infamous is China, where, as Bob mentioned, we uh, had, had a steady and measurable increase in censorship demands on Google, and we chose to move our China search engine out of the country entirely. Then, of course, on the other side of the spectrum are some Western nations and others like the Philippines and Argentina, governments that have generally maintained a very free and open Internet. But the rest of the world is somewhere in between. Almost a third of all Internet users, though, live in countries where there's pervasive or substantial filtering of information online. At Google, our services like Gmail and YouTube have been blocked in 32 countries. We call that our censorship hall of fame. And for all government demands that we get, whether it's for to remove information or to hand over user data or just when our services are blocked, we post it publicly on our transparency report, we call it. 
So if you're interested in seeing which countries are blocking Google services today, you can go to google.com slash transparency report, and you can see an up-to-minute list of where services are being blocked. But ultimately, these countries are racing around, sticking their fingers in dams, constantly chasing down sites and tracking users. Forget the light bulb. Just how many government officials do we think it takes to unscrew a billion Internet users with cell phones? It's way too many for any single government to deal with alone. So blocking and filtering are what I call censorship 1.0. It's still effective in certain ways, but some government, governments are getting much more savvy. They're moving to censorship 2.0. Censorship 2.0 is much more subtle. It's doing things like passing laws that criminalize certain types of political, religious, and social speech. In 2012, in Russia, President Putin signed legislation establishing a nationwide register of banned websites declared harmful to Russia's youth. Pretty vague criteria. And, big surprise, the regime found that many websites run by its political opponents are also harmful to youth. No judicial oversight, just a list of websites the government officials are free to curate as they please. So an increasing number of countries are holding Internet middlemen responsible for the information that's published on their sites. This is something that we deal with directly all the time. So, for example, they're holding a newspaper site responsible for reader comments they don't like. Or they're holding YouTube responsible for videos that they find problematic. So if you're a small news website and you're liable for reader comments, what do you do? You just don't enable comments. And it stifles the conversation entirely. Platforms that would once be free and open now have no conversation happening on them at all. So in Brazil, one of Google's own executives was detained because we failed to remove YouTube clips that criticized local politicians. Some governments are increasingly using physical violence against people who post content online. The Committee to Protect Journalists, an excellent nonprofit organization, reports that half of all journalists imprisoned around the world today operate primarily online. And report after report shows that the fight in the fight for Internet freedom and openness, citizens and the Internet are certainly losing. So why should we pay attention here? In the U.S., information on the Internet is about as open and accessible as it is anywhere. But here are two reasons why this matters for us. First, an open Internet is a fundamental human right. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, a document that was written in 1944, has incredible insight. Article 19 of that document says that everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. This right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas through any media regardless of frontiers. To seek and receive information in any media regardless of frontiers, regardless of borders. That's what the Internet fundamentally allows people to do. If we care about human rights, openness and freedom on the Internet is certainly something that we should care a lot about. Second, a free and open Internet is really good for human well-being. When the Internet, when the open Internet, rather, is restricted, so is the prosperity and the potential of all the people who are connected to it. So the web has made it easier for businesses, both large and small, to reach new customers, communicate with clients, run back office operations, do payroll, marketing, you name it. In fact, the long-term economic impact for society may be one of the greatest imperatives for a free and open Internet. Estonia was recently ranked number one in Internet freedom worldwide. 
and its freedoms are accompanied by the highest GDP per capita of any former Soviet bloc nation. By 2016, the Internet is expected to contribute $4.2 trillion of economic value, and that's just in the G20 countries alone. It's about 21% of all GDP growth is a direct result of people being able to access and use the web. So the Internet's an incredible platform for expanding entire economies. A nation that doesn't have a free and open web, it's an economy that's certainly left behind. Now, of course, Google, my company, an open Internet is certainly good for business. The more open and accessible the Internet is, the more people who will choose to access it, the more people who use our products. It's really that simple. But this isn't just about Internet nerds like us. For all Americans and others who value connecting to people around the world, this is a critical geopolitical issue. When governments filter and restrict the Internet, we as Americans lose the opportunity to connect to people around the world as much as they lose the opportunity to connect to us. It hurts economies and it cuts off people from ideas and from each other. So if we agree that a free and open Internet is a foundation for a greater future, then it becomes pretty clear who has to fight for it. As individuals, we have a responsibility to take action and to speak up when our governments or others encroach on the Internet as we currently know it. There are some immediate tactics that we can take to turn the tides back towards openness. Most importantly, we need to make sure that the U.S. government is a role model for Internet freedom. The revelations about the U.S. surveillance online has certainly eroded our moral high ground on Internet freedom around the world, and we need to fight for that moral high ground back. So a couple of things that we can do. First, we should demand that governments be transparent about how they restrict information and monitor their citizens. This is for both the U.S. and for any government around the world. All governments that request information about people from technology companies should allow those companies to make that information public. Even better, those governments should publish their own reports about how much data they're demanding from companies and they're collecting about their own citizens. Second, we need to make sure that governments apply the same rule of law online that they apply offline. So, for example, in the U.S., if a police officer would like to come into your home, pick up a letter off of your kitchen table, open it and read it, they need a warrant to get that information. They don't need a warrant to search your email. And that's something that fundamentally needs to change. Third, international trade agreements have to be modernized to treat the flow of information just like we treat the flow of steel, grain, and automobiles. So this means that restrictions on the Internet should be treated the same way that we treat unfair tariffs. Governments should be held accountable on this from not just the human rights perspective, but also the economic impact perspective as well. There's just one simple reality that governments need to understand. The power of the Internet comes from its openness. You can't change its fundamental free and open nature and still call it the Internet. It's a fundamentally different type of network. There's the web that's open, and there's something else that's concocted by a group of government officials. Now, this isn't not only an issue to protect today's Internet users, but also the 4.5 billion people who still aren't connected, and that's half the world. So as mobile technology keeps getting less expensive and more available, those billions will connect, and probably soon. The question is, what Internet will they find when they plug in? Will it be a network that connects everyone on Earth? Or a network that will remind us of a different time? A time when the world was divided between free nations and those that were behind the Iron Curtain. This time, we're at risk of it being the Fiber Curtain. 
And the future can't be about an internet that's filtered, censored, or fragmented. One that takes power from internet users and delivers it back into the hands of bureaucrats and dictators. It must be an internet where Basim Yusuf can upload a video that inspires millions, one where an entrepreneur in Dallas can connect to customers or suppliers in India and Brazil, and one where students can tutor kids in Burma, Iran, and Cuba. And it must be an internet that allows us all to be truly global citizens. The freedom and openness of the internet is under serious threat. But if we as Americans stay attuned to the threats, and if we demand that the U.S. lead by example, we can ensure that the internet will be as empowering for the next generation as it is today. Thank you so much, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, and I think <clears throat> Alex Nickel has the best question to start off with. Where is Alex? You stand up while I read your question because you really touched on this, but you, you really do a focus here. How does Google determine what information is unjustly censored versus information that could be detrimental to the security of a nation? Great question. Um, so as I mentioned before, we get demands from governments to remove certain videos um, quite frequently. And what we do is we post those demands online so that people can see what governments are demanding and for what specific reasons, and also what our compliance rate is. So you can see whether or not we agreed with them or did not agree with them. So Google's approach is pretty much this. So we have specific policies for our own products. So for in YouTube, for example, it's within the law to, uh, to have a video or to share online how to make a bomb. But we've decided that on YouTube, we don't want that to be part of our community of videos within YouTube. So we make policies that restrict certain things beyond what's within the framework of the law. So bomb making is a good example. Certain forms of hate speech and extremism, which are protected by the Constitution, we don't allow on our platforms. From there, it's pretty much government legal demands by governments that tell us that something is illegal that we use to remove information. So if something doesn't break our, our guidelines, the community guidelines that we've set, then governments need to submit to us a valid legal request that demonstrates that the demand is within the, um, the intent of the law. So it can't just be an official who says, I want this removed because it's about me. It has to actually violate a law, and we'll accept that, that request. And then we block that piece of content only for, pardon me, the country where it's illegal. So if a video, for instance, in Turkey, um, it's illegal to insult Ataturk, the founder of the country. So if we get a demand showing us that a video that's posted on YouTube is illegal, we'll restrict that only for the Turkish version of YouTube, not for the rest of the citizens um, around the world. Does that help? Yeah. So on that, how to, give, give us a sense of how technically you monitor what's uploaded, say, on YouTube. And for instance, when we had these atrocious beheadings, very quickly, I, I guess they were on YouTube, but then very quickly you removed them. How does that happen? Is it like you have an assignment editor who gets this uploaded and then makes a decision? Or? Yeah, so with 100 hours of video that's uploaded each minute, we can't have someone taking a look at each piece of content that gets reviewed. And I think that's, that's really key. Um, because it has to be a platform where that information can be shared and not restricted because you know, it could be something that violates our policies or violates the law. But if it's someone in Syria who's documenting an atrocity, we want that information to get online as quickly as, as possible. So we don't have a pre-screening process. Um, it's based on user flags. So any YouTube video you watch, you can, there's a little flag in the corner, and you can flag it as something that's illegal or that violates our policies. And that then is the time where people from 
uh, YouTube individually review those videos and make a determination. And it's something that happens within minutes uh, and hours, not days, um, that those reviews happen. Um, there's escalation paths within Google as well that, that so, so take the beheading and explain mm -hmm. how, how that happened, the, your decision and how quick. Right. So the, uh, of course, the horribly traumatic and awful videos of James, James Foley um, were something that were uploaded to YouTube by an ISIS account specifically um, documenting what had happened. And as part of our policies, well, first of all, I want to say there's arguments on both sides about what we should do with that piece of, piece of content. Some people say that, that leaving it up on YouTube, the, the beheading video, is, really gives the world a sense of how evil ISIS is. Others say that that type of content is highly traumatic and horrible for the family, certainly, and shouldn't have any place on the Internet at all. And whatever decision we make, there are, there are reasonable people who, on both sides of that, have, have something to say. Um, we've, we've determined that, that beheading videos aren't allowed on YouTube. Um, so essentially, as those were flagged, we had, you know, as they, as they were uploaded, they were flagged, and our review team saw them and were responding and pulling them down. Um, so it's a, it's a whack-a-mole strategy, certainly, but to allow that openness, to allow people to share, um, it's important that we have that kind of reactive procedure as opposed to the proactive. Questions from the audience? Lots of them. Great. We'll go right there first and then over to you there. Uh, I have a sense that some politicians spin news, broadcast that to the Internet, and it creates a fake news. How can the Internet be, and that happens even in the United States, how can the Internet be made more open so that we can get more truth from our politicians and elected government officials? Wow. Big question. So truth from our elected politicians. So <laughs> and you're in Texas. And you're in Texas, that's right. You know, it's a um, very challenging question, certainly. Um, you know, I think the openness of the Internet does it somewhat inherently. I, I think that the users and citizens are much further ahead of their politicians generally in their use of the web than the politicians are. It's a much, it's a mechanism that's used more to call out uh, statements that aren't facts and those types of things than it is in my, from what I've seen so far, as a propagator of misinformation. It can certainly be used for that. But there are many more citizens than there are politicians and party leaders. And, you know, we saw it in Russia especially with um, ballot stuffing in the 2012 elections where people with cell phones were recording where they could see officials stuffing ballots on site, uploading that, that to the Internet. And Secretary Clinton responded to that just based on one individual with a cell phone and put pressure on the Russian government over the state of their elections. So. You know, I think it's a, it's, it's a strategy where, where individuals post and share and discuss and the information that matters to them bubbles up to the top. Is it going to be perfect in every political situation to hold everyone accountable? No. Um, but I think it gives citizens a much bigger advantage today than they ever had before, certainly. We'll take your question right here. If you'll wait for the microphone, please. I'm back to the um, uh, flagging of, of uh, YouTube videos, or actually information, so not necessarily just YouTube. Um, the days of lag time between um, uploading and viewing um, are probably over, but it would seem to me that there would be um, egregious offenders, not just ISIS. Mm -hmm. um, 
is there is there not any effort you all make to to view those quickly or I mean how does that work? It, truly, the free marketplace is a great um, uh, filterer of its own, but um, to avoid something that you know is coming um, or pretty likely to come, isn't there some way to, to look at it first? Yeah, so certainly for individual YouTube accounts that have a history of having content that violates our <laughs> policies or is against the law, you know, we have a, a strikes policy. So if you continue to upload content that is bad, then we're not going to allow you to continue your account on YouTube for violating those specific rules. So we do it on an account-by-account account basis, certainly. Um, just internally at Google, though, we do see times where we expect things to be rolling in, and we ramp up and have our policy teams ready to respond to these types of things and determine whether or not a, a broader decision needs to be made. So a, a good example was in, um, in 2012, you may remember um, a video called The Innocence of Muslims one where it was a California filmmaker who uploaded a video that Muslims around the world find, found highly offensive. Some said it sparked the Benghazi attack that led to the death of Ambassador Chris Stevens. Um, so that was a very busy day for us over at Google and, uh, and YouTube, um, figuring out how we deal with that specific piece of content that didn't violate our policies at all. It was completely within the rights of that individual to share those sentiments, but people were responding in such a way that it seemed like we needed to go above and beyond to do something about that. Um, so we, at that point, we specifically blocked that video in uh, two countries, in Egypt, um, and it was, uh, there was one other one, I know Egypt for sure, but made the decision to block it there even without a government order because we thought it was a responsible thing to do. Um, and that was a, something that was kind of unprecedented for us, but we wrote about it and made sure the public was aware and our, described our decision-making process. But there are certain times when, you know, when things come up that are a, a bigger international incident that may cost lives, we don't have enough information where you have to make those types of decisions. Um, and that's just one example of where we did that. Dan, we'll get to you next. Thank you. Uh, several years ago, um, we entered World War III by some definitions. And it's all caused by the internet, and it's called hacking. My question is, what is Google doing to prevent hacking or addressing the issue both at the website level and at the internet per se level? Yeah. Great question, thank you. So it's important to remember that Google is just one website overall. So we index the internet, but we don't have direct control over other websites, how they operate, and, and those types of things. Um, what we can do is we can oftentimes have a lots of insight about how a website is operating whether or not it is doing malicious things or not doing malicious things, and try and prevent that type of um, cyber attack. As I mentioned at the table, trust is something that's really important for Google. If people don't trust the Internet, they're not going to be using our services. Our business is going to be in, in big trouble. And hacking and cyber attacks are a big way of that. Um, so I'll give you a couple examples of things that we're doing. Um, one in Gmail, for example, uh, we're introducing as many alerts as we can about messages that we think may have malicious software or code or be trying to do things to your, um, your computer that you may not want them to do. Uh, we've, also, we've done it specifically for state-sponsored attacks. So if we think that your Gmail account is trying to be accessed by a state actor, then we will update your, uh, we'll put a little message in your account at the top letting you know that it's happening. It's an indicator we can give our users to say, hey, time to change your password 
time to, to enable a whole litany of safety features that we think is really important for you to, to do. Um, we also take those, uh, that into account when we rank websites on Google search. So if we detect malicious activity happening on a website where code is being placed from that website or other things, then we won't rank it as highly in our Google search results because we don't think people want to be accessing those types of sites. Um, I think more larger though, education is really key here and we need to do more on that as well and a lot of others and I'm glad to see teachers in the room here too because education, digital literacy about how to um, enable things like two-factor authentication on your email accounts to make sure to, to make sure it's not as easy to hack into your account as it was before. A lot of those things need to be, become part of our digital culture and uh, we need to make sure that citizens aware, are aware of the tools and the safety precautions they can take to avoid those types of dangers. Yes, ma'am. Right behind you, Alana. Thank you. There's certainly considerable effort um, in Europe to block personal content. How is that, uh, do you see that crossing the Atlantic, if you will, and coming here to the United States? Yeah. Um, so the, I believe the case that you're referring to is something that we call more largely the right to be forgotten. Um, and there was a, there's a, a history of this in Europe, in France specifically and other countries. They have laws in the books that say after a certain period of time, if you're a criminal um, or if you've been convicted of a crime, you've done your time, after a certain period of time, a newspaper can no longer report on that past crime. And I think it's very natural for us to think about this type of thing. We don't want our past indiscretions to haunt us for the rest of our lives. And in the internet age, this is much harder to do, right? Information lives online forever. And there's information, whether it's drunken photos in college, or it's perhaps a bad review from a student if you're a teacher, that you don't want that information to live with you forever. So in, um, in Europe, the European Court of Justice just passed a ruling which basically said that individuals in Europe have the right to come to search engines and demand that we remove links from search results on their name. So if I type in Ben Blink, I can go to Google and say, I don't want that result there, I don't want that result there, I don't want that result there. And there are, it sounds very appealing at, at kind of at first thought, but for um, the implications of that are huge because the court basically said that it's on Google to make the decision whether or not that link is within the public interest or whether or not that individual has the right to have that removed. And I think the, the qualifications were if that link is irrelevant, incomplete, or no longer relevant about that person, that it should not be there, which is really tough. So we've received more than 100,000 demands, 450,000 demands from 100,000 people to remove information about them from Google. We get things like, um, We've seen uh, home services contractors who don't want bad reviews posted about them when you search for it. We've seen convicted child sexual abusers who don't want a newspaper story about them to be um, under their, their name. A number of other, you know, very, think these are not cut and dry situations of information that should stay up or go down. Um, so we're responding essentially by doing the best we can and making the decisions. We just updated our transparency report, which I told you about before with that specific ruling so you can see how many demands we get, how many we comply with, how many we push back on. Um, but I think citizens need to have a really fundamental conversation about what is the right to privacy and what is the public's right to know? And how do we ensure that both of those things are, are balanced? Um, I think that the US has very strong First Amendment protections. I think it'd be hard 
for a US Congress to pass a law saying that it's okay to remove legally published newspaper articles or other things from the web. Um, but I still think there's more of a discussion to be had about how we balance these privacy versus um, you know, rights to information uh, things here as well. I've been focusing on this side. Are there questions over here? Any other questions? You had a question, sir. You'll have the last question then. We've been talking uh, most of this time about protecting individuals from government intrusion. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite search engines is DuckDuckGo. Mm -hmm. And that uh, pre precludes tracking. Should the American public be concerned about intrusion from Google? Okay. So, uh, great question, thank you. Um, you know, we get questions all the time about how Google uses data. How do we use it to make money and a number of other things? Um, and how we, again, balance that with privacy rights and other things. So, there, I mean, there's no question that Google uses, you know, um, information to sell advertising. And that's the way that we're able to keep the services that we offer for free. We can do that because there's search ads that appear next to the search results, ads in Gmail and those types of things. Um, I think any smart internet user needs to, be, needs to look at the services they use and think about what data is, is being used where and what they know about how that data is being used. Um, for us at Google, we make sure that as much of that information the user can access and, and see what data we have about them and how we use it. So if you have a Google account, a Gmail account or anything, you can go to google.com slash dashboard and it'll pull up all the data and information that we have um, about you. You can see the number of email messages, the number of calendar invites. You can see um, the, the way that we use advertising or how we use advertising data and those things. And you can edit that information. So if there are search results you don't want stored anymore, you can delete those. Um, and you can export that information. So if you decide one day that, you, that Google is being too intrusive and you want to use a different service, you can export all of your information out of Google and upload it into a different service and, and take it somewhere else. I think it's the responsibility of the company to make sure that citizens have that ability to do that. They can access their data and, and move it in different ways. And it, for example, if you look at ads in Google, there's a little information icon that you can see, and it'll tell you more about how we, why that, that ad is being placed for you and where we got that information that led us to do that. Um, so that information is really important. So what you're saying is we have a lot of responsibility ourselves. I mean, I think, in any type of interaction in the digital world, both citizens and companies have a responsibility on both sides. I mean, fact of the matter is that most of our users aren't interested. <laughs> they, don't, they don't use those services. They don't investigate that much further. What they care about is that they can get their email on their phone, on their tablet, on their desktop, without having to sync them in different ways. That they just want that information stored and delivered to them in an effective and free way. And we, you know, we're trying to deliver services in a seamless way possible. Um, but for all citizens who have the right to know how their data is being used and other things, we offer those services too so people can, can check it out. Good. I want to thank you very hey, much for being pleasure. with us. And, uh, <laughs> for more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.